the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, has been releasing reports over the past decades to assess the causes and impacts of climate change and what we can supposedly do to stop it. They attribute climate change almost solely to human influence. In reality, the climate has been changing ever since the Earth had an atmosphere, well before humans or any other living creature evolved. What humans contribute is minimal and certainly not driving a global catastrophe. So the dire IPCC projections are misguided at best, deceitful and promoting depopulation at worst trying to strip the world's poor and indeed everyone, regardless of their wealth of plentiful, reliable energy provided by fossil fuels, would be immoral, even if the science behind the climate scare was sound. But it isn't. We're seeing breaches of human rights across the board from climate activists who claim to be fighting for climate justice, when in fact they're promoting the exact opposite. In this episode, we'll hear from our guest, Dr. Sterling Burnett, about why the IPCC's focus on carbon dioxide as a driver of climate change is misguided and what the real consequences would be if we try to reduce global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. Sterling is director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and the managing editor of Environment and Climate News at the Heartland Institute. Before joining Heartland, he worked at the National Center for Policy Analysis for 18 years, most recently as a senior fellow in charge of their environmental program. He has held various positions in professional and public policy organizations, including serving as a member of the Environment and Natural Resources Task Force in the Texas Controller's E-Texas Commission, and is a former president of Dallas Woods and Water Conservation Club. Sterling has also been a senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Institute, an academic advisor for Collegians for a Constructive Tomorrow, and an advisor for the Energy, Natural Resources, and Agricultural Task Force at the American Legislative Exchange Council. He's published hundreds of articles in newspapers and professional journals, and has been interviewed on radio and TV more than 100 times. Sterling received his doctorate in applied philosophy from Bowling Green State University. His work has focused on environmental ethics, economics, and public policy, as well as criminal justice and firearms policies and rights. (laughs) Wow, you've got a lot of background there, Sterling. (laughs) So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's been a while. Yeah, for sure. So starting out right away with our questions on the IPCC. Now, what are some of the major issues with the IPCC latest report and their summary for policymakers And how did they come up with such dire, but really quite inaccurate projections for Earth's climate? Well, um, I'm going to address that, uh, the latter half of your question first. How they come up with their projections are based on climate models. Mm -hmm. Climate models that don't get present temperature right, that don't reflect past temperatures accurately, but we're told to trust their projections for future temperatures. In general, what they do is they run way too hot. Mm-hmm. And those models are built upon assumptions about physics or, you know, f- laws of physics, assumptions about uh, how much emissions will be going in, and all sorts of uh, assumptions about the types of feedbacks that will occur. So they run way too hot. And when they run way too hot, 
they say, well, all these different things will happen, you know, and basically it is garbage in, garbage out. And the further out you go, just like with any projection, you know, look at your local weather report, right? If you're a meteorologist, your local meteorologist says it's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow. You're mm-hmm. pretty confident that you might get rain tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean it's a 70% chance. There's always a 30% chance you won't see any rain. But, you know, you're, you're pretty confident. But if he says there's a 70% chance of rain on this date two years from now, you can have no confidence whatsoever in what he's saying. Yeah. You know, even if, if he or she says there's a 70% chance of rain next week on Tuesday, the farther out these projections go, uh, the worse, the, 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 the more likely that they are to be wrong. And mm-hmm. climate models are projecting 20, 50, 100 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why their projections are so badly flawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, concerning uh, what... Well, just before, before you go on. So Sterling, if we take the current computer models and we go back 30 years and we plug in the conditions that existed at the time, and then we run the models for 30 years, do we actually see today's conditions? They'd be off. So they would have gotten the temperature wrong. They, they actually do hindcast, right? But what they mm-hmm. do is they force, they force the model to fit the past record. Mm-hmm. So uh, they started 30 years ago, uh, more than 40, 30 years ago, doing this climate forecasting. And if you look at the, what the models predicted then, they'd be wrong for today. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, but we've, we've improved. No, what they do is they take the current models and they say, by God, you will fit. And, and they twist <laughs> the data until it fits, until it corresponds to what the past uh, says. And then they run it from there. And so if they ran the current models going back, they, they'd be wrong on temperature. And since every other projection they make flows from their outputs on temperature, they'd be wrong on everything else. And of mm. course, oh, yeah. and point. of course, yeah, well, that's the most important thing. Look, the climate models are specifically intended to make projections about the impact of CO2 on temperature. Mm-hmm. Everything else, hurricanes, droughts, whatever else, all flows from that. So if you don't get the first output right, why trust any of the other outputs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and so they haven't, and they haven't consistently since uh, since the models were created. Yeah. So, um, but as bad as that is, and that's bad, the most recent report actually just tells flat out lies about what has occurred. Uh, it, the things they say, oh, with high confidence, we can say this. With high confidence, we can say that. Well, it's like a hold it. Does the data support what they say? Mm-hmm. Not model, because here's are not here they're not talking about model projections. Here they're talking about facts on the ground, things that have occurred. And not only are they lying, it doesn't even correspond with what they said in their physical science report a year and a half ago. There is no new science in this report. Well, actually, that's an interesting question. So this report, if I understand correctly, it's a synthesis report, which is a summary of the previous three reports. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so the first report that every five years or so, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, their their panels of scientists, they've got three sets of panels of scientists. They come up with reports. And the first report, uh, this is the sixth round. And the first report is always the physical science report. 
So mm-hmm. everything, it's just like, you know, if global temperature is what drives all the other projections in, in the climate models, the physical science report is what drives all the other things that are said in the reports that come thereafter. Okay. And, and so they have a report on, uh, uh, you know, biological life, for instance, or, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, weather, for instance, you know, that comes out of the first report. And this synthesis report is basically, it's sort of a, a, a final harangue. It's, mm-hmm. it's not hurrah, harangue. Do, yeah. so, do something or else. It's almost too, before it's too late. And that's the kind of language they use, before it's mm-hmm. too late. They come out and they say, and how do we know this? Well, we've issued this new report that says bad things are happening and, uh, and you better act fast. Mm. But there's no new science in the report. The report, the science it relies on was released uh, two years, a year and a half ago in August. And mm. that uh, science largely is not reflected in this final synthesis report. Mm-hmm. So the synthesis report then should be summarizing what they concluded previously. It shouldn't be making up new stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be saying whole not just whole new things, but whole new things that aren't supported by what they what they said in their physical sciences report. Yeah, maybe they're just hoping people will forget what they said a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, it's hard to it's it's hard to understand what they think they get out of this. I think uh, you know it, it did get a big splash in the media the first day it was released, maybe the second day as well. But unlike past reports, it has faded pretty quickly, and I don't yeah. know that's whether that's because so many other events have occurred that have just taken up the headlines and taken the oxygen out of the room, or whether it's because uh, you know people, it, journalists are realizing that people are finally catching on that there's nothing, you know, this is uh, this is the the uh, the emperor with no clothes. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that you have first of all the science report which is, you know, very technical and written by experts and certainly biased experts in many cases, but nevertheless, you know, maybe moderately sensational. And then you have the synthesis report. Then you have the summary for policymakers, which would exaggerate more. And then you have like the head of the UN coming out and saying, oh, it's a ticking time bomb. So it strikes me that every one of those steps sort of elevates the alarm even higher and higher. So, I mean, when you hear the final statements from the UN that, you know, when he's speaking to the press, I mean, how much how much in common does it actually have with the original science document? Well, it has some in common, right? It, it does refer back to it. It's just lot in a lot of respects not accurately reflecting it. And let's let's take a few points. For instance, um, I want to I want to I'm going to go to it for just a second because I think yeah, this is sure. important, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So they I, I, I want to get it right. They say in this report that they have high confidence. High confidence, which means basically uh, almost certain, you know, like 95% confidence level um, that uh, climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses in uh, coastal and open ocean ecosystems. They attribute this to, uh, um, they they, they talk about increasing. tropical cyclones and hurricanes they talk about increasing droughts uh they talk about increasing rates of sea level rise and heavy precipitation and the problem is uh in the in the the physical science report let's just talk about tropical cyclones yeah they say explicitly 
there is no evidence. We, we cannot point to any evidence that tropical cyclones have become either more numerous or more intense. So they just make it up. <laughs> so they just make it up. They, they say that. And they say also that we can't attribute any changes to tropical cyclones, to human activities. And yet, here they say, and in particular, their attribution to human influence is further strengthened. No, th th they make no attribution to human influence in the, in the, in the physical science report. Droughts, this is interesting. So mm -hmm. they say droughts have increased. Well, in the physical science report, what does it say? The physical science report divides droughts into four types of droughts. Two of the four types of droughts have not increased at all. Yeah. Uh, and and so, of course, since they haven't increased, there's also no human attribution to change. Two of the four types of droughts have increased in 12 of the 47 regions they split the earth into. So okay. for the vast so majority of the globe, they haven't changed. And, and in that, only two of the regions that they say they had medium confidence that droughts, some changes in droughts may be attributable to human activities. The other uh, uh, 10 uh, regions where droughts, uh, two types of drought may have occur occurred, they don't attribute it to human activities at all. So whence mm -hmm. here, they say evidence of observed changes attributed to human influences. Hold it. That's not what the science in your own document says. Right. Nobody points it out, I guess, in the mainstream media. <laughs> no, they, they they read this now or mm -hmm. they read they read the summary. I'm not reading, by the way, right now, I'm not reading the summary for policy. Well, I, no, I actually am. I'm reading the summary for policymakers from this document. Mm -hmm. um, they they also say uh, agricultural productivity, uh, food, food security has been damaged. It's hindering. Climate change is hindering efforts to meet sustainable development goals because it has reduced food security. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what the data shows from the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization clearly is that food, food security has increased. There's more food in stock. There's more food every year, almost. Reduction sets new records. Uh, uh, yields set new records. Fewer people are hungry. How on what you know? How do you define food security? Because mm -hmm. if if you look at data that, that about the amounts of food available, the amount of people hungry, you know the yields, mm -hmm. all those are saying food should be more secure. Maybe they're saying people are stealing more food. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so you know what about uh, other factors like like uh, sea level rise or floods or you know all this sort of thing. I, is it just as inaccurate, even in comparison with their own science report? Yeah, no, that, that's the point is, is for the most part, it is. They talk about, they say, they say very clear. Here's, I'm going to read this. In okay. all regions, increases in extreme heat events have resulted in human mortality and morbidity. Very high confidence. So that means like 99% confident, right? <laughs> right. Um, well, let's look at that. Uh, I, I would argue, by the way, there, there, this is accurate. Human mortality due to uh, extreme heat has increased modestly. That's what the research shows. But there's, uh, it, it, we used to have a guy here um, named Paul Harvey that hosted a famous radio show. And he'd say, that's the other side of the story. Okay, the other side of the story, the, the you know, you flip the coin. It turns out that cold-related deaths claim 
10 to 17 times more lives each year than heat-related deaths. And you know what's been going down dramatically as the earth has modestly warmed? Deaths related to coal. So human mortality related to temperature is actually getting better. And in fact, mm-hmm. across the 30 years that the, uh, that the IPCC has been hyped as the authority on climate change and saying that the world is coming to an end, it, it turns out that over the last century, 99% of deaths attributable to it, it, the deaths attributable to extreme weather events or heat mm-hmm. or, or, or temperatures have yeah. declined by 99%. Wow. Uh, at the, at the beginning of the 20th century to tens of thousands today. And all this has happened while the earth has warmed dramatically and the world is coming to an end and the report ignores that. So sometimes it's not just that they lie. Sometimes it is that they only tell half the story. <laughs> now, what about the UN scientists themselves as the scientists who contribute to it? I mean, are they not standing up and say, hey, I didn't conclude that. That's my specialty. And you got it backwards. Well, I haven't seen that so far with this report. I, I don't know that none of them are. I know in the past some scientists did. Right. There were right. there were scientists oh. that said you you are lying. You're not telling the truth about hurricanes and they're no longer on the IPCC. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were scientists that said, you are not telling the truth about my research on uh, vector borne diseases, which means insect borne oh, diseases. Yeah. Like, that was Paul, like Ru- Paul Ryder. Right? From Paul Ryder from the mm-hmm. Pasteur Institute. Yep. He resigned <laughs> mm-hmm. because he said, he said, you're, you're using my work and you're not telling the truth about it. You're saying that, that, that insect borne diseases are increasing and attributing it to climate change. And my research shows they're decreasing. Mm-hmm. There are scientists that called out the IPCC. Uh, and, and this was an embarrassment to the, to the head of the IPCC at the time when he, the, the, the document cited a single source, which was an environmental group <laughs> said the Himalayan glaciers will be, will disappear uh, mm-hmm. in, in 30 years. Has the Heartland Institute sort of written this down where they say, you said this, but it violates your own own science report from earlier. Like, is there something on the Heartland site that actually shows that? Well, there's lots. Look, there's lots of reports um, mm-hmm. on the Heartland site that do that. And every day, if people were to go to climaterealism.com, they'd okay. see our new response to, you know, every day there are dozens of news stories that get the facts wrong on climate change. Mm-hmm. And they, they always they, and they cite some underlying study, often the IPCC. And so we can't write about every news story, but we pick a topic or two topics every day where we say the mainstream media says this based on this research. Here's why it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll include a link to climaterealism.com under the show when it goes to podcast on Monday. But uh, no, this is really important. And I know we had other questions, but I wanted to ask a little bit more about this because the IPCC report, of course, is the basis of the Canadian government's approach, and I presume the Joe Biden's approach as well. Um, I mean, who's fighting back besides Heartland and, and us? I mean, is, is there very many people in the science community, for example, who are saying, this is all baloney? <laughs> uh, gosh, there are, you know, you, you know, Tom, because you've been to them. We, we host conferences. We've hosted 15 international conferences on climate change. Yeah, they're great. We have uh, a number, usually in the dozens of uh, climate researchers, of physicists, of 
uh, meteorologist, uh, biologist, geologist, that they attend these conferences. They speak at these conferences every time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, award-winning scientists. And, yeah, they fight out against it. But you know what? They don't have the megaphone. Mm-hmm. It's often said that, you know, oh, uh, you know, dark money drives climate skepticism. Uh, except they don't call it skepticism. <laughs> they call it uh, uh, denial, denial, right? Denial. Yeah, denial. Uh, dark, dark money. Oh, these corporate chills, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So it, the media it, it, are really the main sort of source of the scare. It's not the science. <laughs> well, remember, where do where do average people and honestly, probably most legislators get their information on climate change? Do you think they wade through academic journals reading oh. that dense stuff that would put them to sleep or make their heads hurt? Yeah, no. they can't do that math. Mm-hmm. They get it as it's distilled through a generally scientifically illiterate press. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll actually put a link under the podcast to your conference because these conferences are amazing. I would have been there, except that as a person who's unvaccinated, Joe Biden wouldn't let me cross the border. <laughs> you know, And uh, that whole thing, of course, is a totally different topic. But it is interesting how more and more policy seems to be divorced from science. It's it's just kind of made up, I guess. They just do what they want and add a science. So what? <laughs> well, it's 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 federally approved science, right? They, mm-hmm. they say follow the science. I mean, I think the other side is who the climate deniers are because they deny the science of climate change. And by science, I mean the real data. I don't mean mm-hmm. models. Models aren't science. They're tools to uh, help effectuate scientific understanding, but they aren't science themselves. So when the models conflict with reality, with data, you're not supposed to believe the models and cling to them stubbornly. You're supposed to say, well, the models are wrong. Let's go back to the drawing board and figure out why. Yeah, that's exactly what Feynman often said. I mean, he he would say, if your models don't match the empirical data, then your models are wrong, period. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Einstein said it. Many, many others have said this, uh, you know, and uh, Popper talks about falsifiability. So it's um, it's disturbing. And so what we have come to learn, as we learned with COVID, right, there's science and then there's the science, and the science is whatever the government seems to approve and fund. Yeah, exactly. We have to go for a break, but after the break, I'd like to ask you, what is the overall objective here? Because, I mean, they don't just make up this stuff for fun. They must have something in the, in the back of their mind as to what they're trying to do. So we're going to go for a break. My guest today is Dr. Sterling Burnett, and he's the director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. You can check out Heartland at heartland.org, a wonderful organization. I encourage people to take a look. So we'll be right back after the break. Are you worried about spike proteins and how they may impact your health? Are you looking for help? The Wellness Company has an answer in the form of our clean, pure, all-natural spike formula developed by experts like Dr. Peter McCullough. The Wellness Company's spike formula includes the incredible natokinase, dandelion root, black sativa extract, green tea, and iris sea moss. Even better, the spike formula by The Wellness Company is vegan, gluten-free, and made right here in the USA, so you know that you can trust and rely on it if you're concerned about spike proteins. Buying American-made naturalistic ingredients of this quality separately costs over $100. Our spike formula is only $65.99. 
Get Spike Formula today by going to twc.health. Outloud listeners use the code OUTLOUD at checkout for an additional discount. Go to twc.health, promo code OUTLOUD, and get peace of mind if you're concerned about spike proteins. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Before we return to the interview, I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com. So I'm back with Dr. Sterling Burnett, director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. We've been talking about this massive IPCC report that's just come out telling us that the ticking time bomb, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what do you think is the driver, Sterling? Because if it doesn't match their own science reports, and they're not stupid people, so no. they must know that. So why are they blowing this all out of proportion? Why are they making up so much stuff? I mean, what's their goal? Well, look, I I hate to play the psychologist game. I don't uh, I don't purport, you know, I'm not a psychologist and I would even if I were, I would hesitate to talk about a whole group of people as if they were one and um especially, you know, if I hadn't interviewed them personally and and then say, well, they fit this psychological profile, blah blah blah. That's not what I'm going to do. But what I'll say is this. So there was one scientist that was very honest about this once a guy named Steve Schneider. And in the seventies, uh, he's a very prominent scientist. He's passed away now in the seventies. He wrote a book with, uh, uh, Obama's former science advisor, John Holdren. And they said the earth was cooling and the government needed to respond with big, big activity. And, uh, we're, 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 we're the coming ice age is coming. And, um, then in, in the late eighties, he was writing about the coming global warming and how dangerous that was. And the response is the same that no mm-hmm. matter what the crisis, the response is always the same. 
bigger government, bigger, more powerful government, more intrusive government, government control over more of your lives. That's always the response. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter the crisis. You know, COVID, bigger government, climate change, bigger government, chemicals, bigger government, energy, bigger government. That's always the response. Mm-hmm. So uh, someone asked Snyder about this, and he says, well, that's what the data and models showed then. The data and models have changed. And so I, I follow the science. And he said, mm-hmm. now, in, in all honesty, if you read these reports, you know, when scientists, if they're being honest, good scientists, they have to report all the ifs, ands, and buts, all the uncertainties, all the things that could be mistaken, you know, where it's unclear. Uh, he said, but we're not just scientists. We're people, and we care about making the world a better place. And so when we make public statements, we have to make them dramatic and downplay the uncertainties and not point out that we really don't know all sorts of. So he he honestly answered this, and he wow. was immediately slammed by the community. So, you can't admit that. <laughs> Hold mm. it. Uh, he never did it again. He did it one time in an interview from Discover Magazine. Um oh, wow. So I have to look, look that up because it'd be great to put actually in our description. Oh, it's a, yeah, no, it's a great quote. I, I've seen it. I've, I've read, you know, reused it dozens of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I think for politicians, it's about power. Why do politicians support this? It expands government. I don't know a single government bureaucrat. I don't know a single agency that goes before Congress at the beginning of the year at budget time or at the end of the year at budget time and says, you know what? We've, we've accomplished our mission. Uh, we need less funding and fewer staff. Mm-hmm. I don't know that agency. I've never seen a single agency say we don't need as much money as you gave us last year. <laughs> yeah, You know, well, that doesn't happen. So they want more power. So they're constantly trying to expand their uh, purview, their area of uh, authority, mm-hmm. because that's what brings in more money. And, and more staff. And, and I guess scientists want to make their research seem relevant. They say, oh, there's no problem here. Then they may not get funding either. Well, that's part of it. Yeah, no, that, that's right. So so scientists, you've got different scientists. Remember, there are a lot of scientists who say the climate is changing, but it's not a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but funding proposals to back that don't get a lot of government re- funding. Mm-hmm. The people who decide where that money goes to don't like that narrative. Mm-hmm. It also strikes me that the real question isn't are humans causing climate change? Because, of course, we are. When you cut down a forest and you put up a parking lot, you have local heat island or whatever. And yep. the question isn't even, uh, you know, is CO2 the driver of climate? To me, the real question is, are we causing so much climate change that it's worth restructuring our entire energy infrastructure at a cost of trillions of dollars? And of course, that question isn't really a science question alone. I mean, that's an energy question. That's a social science question. That's a political question. So, I mean, the scientists might actually say, yes, there's significant climate change and we're causing it, but it doesn't necessarily lead to the answer that it's worth spending trillions of dollars on it, does it? Well, there's three questions there. There's, there's, uh, is climate change occurring? Yes, it always has, it always does. Are human CO2 emissions the cause? Maybe for part of it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the accurate answer. Uh, are they driving the whole thing? I don't think science has determined that, but maybe for part of it. And then there's, 
is does it pose a catastrophe if the warming continues for a little bit more and co2 keeps going up does that mean the world is coming to an end it's an existential threat to our survival because that's how they frame it those are the words they use right and the answer to that is unequivocally no yeah to even answer that question you can't just rely on a physical scientist i mean you have to look at people who understand the impacts on society who understand how we generate energy i mean to me that's a multi, very multidisciplinary question well, i'm not sure I, I think right here you're still in the realm of science mm-hmm. it answers are the seas rising and will they flood new york if they mm-hmm. would that's pretty a substantial change will <laughs> yeah. florida disappear below the waves that's pretty substantial and that's a scientific question that's yeah, not a normative but- question that's a scientific question and the point is the data doesn't show that either of these things is true. Right. So right. if disaster is not, first you ask, is disaster in the offing? That's a scientific question. Yeah, good point. Whether it's whether it's disaster or something less, then you get to the normative question of what should we do about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their answer is, A, it's a disaster. And I think the data doesn't show that. And B, because it's a disaster, what government should do is in the very, very short term, stop human use of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't look at, once again, the other side of the coin. Okay, what will the effects of that be? Would they be worse than the effects of climate change itself? Mm, yeah, a good point. Because I know Christopher Monkton has done an analysis that shows, I think he showed that it was 50 times more expensive to try to stop climate change if you thought we were causing it then the impact on us would be and and you know i i have not done the calculations myself chris might be right it could be 20 times it could be 10 times uh but the point is it's not a disaster in the offing and the effects uh certainly don't merit certainly the the response of ending fossil fuel use would have far more deleterious impacts now and into the future than trying to adapt and respond to climate change, whatever the cause and whatever direction it takes. Mm-hmm. We've got, look, we've got a country called Holland that is under sea level. And it has been for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the people of Holland have adjusted quite well to being a low-lying nation below sea level. They built right. dikes and dams and trenches and windmills and all sorts of things, they adapted. Mm-hmm. Throughout history, we have adapted. Seas have risen, they have fallen. You find places that were current that are currently below sea level, uh, below sea. You know, the ancient. You look at look at some some of the places in ancient Greece and Rome and stuff. Cities that no longer exist that have been swallowed by sea level long before there was an internal combustion engine. But then you also find areas yeah. where there were ports that are now 30 miles from the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but in ancient times, people were shipping products from there regularly. Yeah. In England and Rome, uh, mm-hmm. I think in Spain, you, you'll find these places that were at one time were bustling ports uh, that that uh, you'd have to drive a long way to get to a port now. Mm-hmm. So uh, the point is, we can adjust we can adapt. We can build better buildings that don't uh, collapse or that cause less damage when hurricanes and tornadoes come through. And we should be doing that whether the climate changes or not, because that's mm-hmm. good for life. 
Yeah. We, yeah. Have you ever seen somebody take those three or four steps that have to be you know, shown to be true before we actually agree that we have a climate emergency and actually put a probability on it. so that let's say there's three steps and each step has a 10% chance of being true. Each of the questions, you would only end up with a one in a thousand chance of the final outcome actually happening. I mean, surely each of these steps, especially if, you know, we don't know for sure the answers to most of them, but if they're low probability and you multiply those probabilities, the likelihood then of an, of an extreme catastrophe like Florida being below sea level would end up being very, very tiny. Infinitesimal. But um, if, if you were somebody who was deeply wedded to the narrative that climate change is causing a disaster, mm-hmm. whether because you're profiting from it, whether because you believe it, whether you your funding depends on believing it, or your tenure as a young scholar depends on believing it, mm-hmm. or whether you're a politician because it gives you power to believe it, you can always respond. Yeah, but the outcome, if we're wrong, is so dire, we've got to do something serious. Well, yeah, I hear that quite often. They say, well, what if you're wrong? But I mean, you could make that argument about an asteroid impact on the Earth. I mean, yep. if we're wrong, if we're wrong when we do our calculations and we see something coming, maybe it's a few years off, you know, way out around Neptune. Um, so what do we do? Do we say, well, there is a chance that it'll hit the Earth. Maybe it's a one in a thousand chance, but you're going to spend all your resources on that. I mean, surely all of these things involve a risk analysis. Well, yeah, what it involves is it's a, a, a calculation of the benefits and the costs of different courses of action, right? Mm-hmm. A, a, a harm versus benefit analysis of different courses of action. And I guess the research that I've seen largely shows that depriving people of fossil fuels today, when we already when we have more than a billion people in energy poverty, uh, still millions who uh, are in hunger, you know, maybe hundreds of millions in, that are that are hungry, uh, th- whose kids don't have educations, that don't have access to modern hospitals, mm-hmm. uh, not just during emergencies, anytime. Um, Telling them, telling the the most impoverished people of the world, you've got to remain poor. So a hundred years from now, uh, wealthy landowners uh, in in Nantucket won't get their feet wet with rising mm-hmm. oceans. That seems to me to be immoral. <laughs> well, also, <laughs> sorry, you've got to die now. You got to continue yeah. dying. Your children don't get to grow up because uh, Barack Obama invested in a, a house on the shore that he said when he was president would be underwater soon. Yeah. And the chances of that are like one in a thousand, whereas the chances of people starving or having a miserable life because they don't have right energy, the chances of that are virtually certain if we were to follow the IPCC goals. And that actually leads to my next question. And I think you've partly answered it. And that is the consequences of following their goals to limit temperature to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, et cetera. I mean, First of all, is that goal even possible? I was about to say, let's dispose of that goal now. That's over. Okay. One of the things that the IPCC report bemoaned, the, the new one, not the not the physical science report, but the new one they just released, the synthesis report, it bemoaned the fact that we are almost certainly on track to very soon pass 1.5 degrees. We're already above 1.1, almost 1.2, and we're almost certainly going to pass 1.5. Yeah, and that's now, good, right? Now, I mean, now in 2005, <laughs> in 2005, the IPCC said, if we pass one, 
the world's going to come to an end. Well, <laughs> I'm still here. Uh, you know, you're still here. We're talking through modern internet technology. Um, uh, so we surpassed that previous prediction and the world didn't end. I see no evidence that surpassing 1.5, which they've said now is almost certain. Mm -hmm. So, um, you either, you either join the ranks of Omar Khayyam and say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Uh, or you say, okay, so we're going to surpass 1.5. What? next you know what does that what does that mean okay so do we now have to stop it at before two and -hmm. what will be the cost of that because now we're not talking about the cost of trying to stop 1.5 now we're talking about the cost of something beyond that and the question is what are the realistically what are the impacts likely to be how will it affect human civilization individual lives and ecosystems because we rely on those yeah uh, all the species, and in a realistic assessment, what actions could we take to prevent that? What would those impacts be? And what alternatives do we have? Those are a sta- staggered, staged questions, and they're complex. They're not easy. They're they they want to make. They claim that if we just wave this magic wand with technologies that don't really work the way they're supposed to today. They claim with current technologies, we could replace all fossil fuels tomorrow. Yeah, but then we'd have no power. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that's just simply a lie. Yeah, that's that's wrong. Yeah. And with current technologies, we can't even do it by 2035 mm-hmm. or 2050. If we want I... to have reasonably uh, uh, flourishing lives, right? Where would, where would net zero put the U.S. in economic development uh, now? Well, around the around the eighteen twenties. Jeez, I don't I know many. I don't know many people who want to go without indoor plumbing. Anymore. Yeah, right. I, I'm going to say something a little outrageous, and I hope you can you can you know be devil's advocate, take this apart. I'm going to say I don't care what the global average temperature is, because nobody lives in a global average. People live in regions. I mean, if part of the if a major part of the Antarctic became minus fifty instead of minus fifty five. At a certain time of the year, yeah, that would affect global average, but but so what? And you know, the other point is, is simply this: I mean, if if you have a, in in this case a one point one five, I think was the number they said in the report degree rise since eighteen eighty. I mean, would you? And that's an average over the whole planet. Would you even notice it in your lifetime? <laughs> well, you wouldn't. Ask yourself this. Well, you know, you're in Canada, so I can't speak to that. Maybe. Uh, people in the Northwest Territories or in uh, um, what's what's the native uh, Nunavut? Yeah, uh, right. Maybe they, when they retire, want to go to uh, Ontario or someplace along the border. Yeah. But in the U.S., typically, when re- people retire, they move south. Mm-hmm. They go to Florida. They go to Alabama. They go to Tennessee. They move to Texas uh, resorts. A lot of them move to beaches. So they're they're moving to the risk of hurricanes that existed yeah. long before internal combustion. Where they don't retire to typically is, is, Dulu- is Duluth, <laughs> yeah, or Anchorage, yeah, or yeah. or uh, you know North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not where they retire. Mm-hmm. So they choose heat over cold when you get older. And the truth is, 
we all experience greater temperature increases and decreases dramatic every day than that 1.5, which, as you said, we wouldn't notice. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about averages, because I hear this a lot. The Earth isn't a living being. Contrary to what some environmentalists say, there is no thing called Gaia that breathes and eats and, and is some kind of living entity. So there's no natural temperature of the Earth. Right. <laughs> no average that we need to really pay attention to, like 98.6 degrees for humans. We all know everybody may waver a little bit around that. But if it goes very much lower than that, you're in trouble. And if it goes very much higher than that, you're in trouble. Right. Uh, there is no, for the Earth, some... Uh, the people who think that there should be some natural temperature that's 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 ideal... They think they're God. They've got this God eye point of view. I know what the yeah. temperature ought to be, and it's not what it is now. It's too hot now. It should be. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. they, they think they're they think they're the 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 um, the the third the baby bear. It's yeah. just right. <laughs> the temperature is just right. When well, it turns out it was just right in the 1840s, uh, but now it's really bad. And yeah, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Averages are nothing more than you take a lot of different numbers, you add them together, and you divide them by the number of numbers. It's a classroom. You got mm -hmm. 30 kids in your classroom. Not a single kid got a 77 on the most recent test, but the average for the class is 77 because some kids got a lot worse and some kids got a lot better, but no one actually got 77. And, no, and, and the only people that care about that, you know, the average are the teachers if their employment depends on it. Yeah. And the school administrators, if their school rating depends on it. Well, you know, I think that the whole concept of global average temperature is a bit ridiculous because, and, and, you know, the significance of it could be zero, no significance, because yeah. let's take an extreme case and let's say half the earth became 10 degrees warmer and half the earth became 10 degrees colder. The average wouldn't change. And yet that, Temperature differential would lead to extreme weather beyond belief. I mean, oh, and and movements of people beyond belief. Civilizations yeah. would change, but um, what we're you know what we're likely to see is the least inhabited places on you know, and this is on their physics, right? If CO two uh -huh. goes up and and everything acts as they say it should, uh, you're likely to see a warming at the poles of greater than average, and almost no change, or no change at all around the equator mm -hmm. so um it it turns out that uh if certain glaciers you know if greenland and and antarctica entirely melt and flow into the sea seas will rise dramatically but can we adjust to seas rising dramatically yes we can mm -hmm. do we, we have, have time to adjust to that yes we do but yeah. I'm not confident that over the long term, those things are going to keep melting or, and in Antarctica's case, it turns out there's good evidence that it may be adding more ice than it's losing. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it's not a net contributor to sea level rise. Mm -hmm. Or if it is, it's much less than, uh, than many, many people are warning about. You know, when they say, oh, if this glacier collapses... I raise the seas. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's over, right. over over 60 years, it will raise the seas some inches. 
Yeah. One glacier, right? Okay. Well, well okay. So, so all we're going to do is sit in the sand and wait for the seas to rise around us over those 60 years. Yeah. It's not yeah. believable. Yeah. I wanted to shift gears here. We have only about seven minutes left. And because you're in Texas, it's an ideal opportunity for me to ask you, what would you say to the city of Ottawa, the councillors and, and the mayor and everybody else? They're talking about having 710 industrial wind turbines taller than the Statue of Liberty, 36 square kilometers of solar panels, you know, 122 large shipping containers of batteries, and they want to get rid of all of our fossil fuels and run the city on these renewable energy sources. I mean, as a person who experienced the Texas blackout, what yeah. would be your message to the city of Ottawa? A Texas blackout, mind you, not during the summer, during peak electric power season, but during the winter. Yeah. When, when, when we're normally at the nadir of our electric powers uh, yeah. demand. Um, and the reason was because we went with renewables. Uh, mm. We shifted away. We, we closed. I, I, I forget whether now it's whether it's four or six large coal fire power plants. Uh, we uh, reduced reliance. Uh, we did increase reliance on natural gas, but uh, through some stupid decisions by administrators, they shut off the power to the natural gas pipelines, uh, tr switching stations uh, to shift it to residential demand. Well, that meant that they froze up and we didn't have the natural gas when the when the coal came. Uh, but it also is largely due to the fact that uh, three days before the uh, the depths of it, we were getting on the order of 38% of our power from wind turbines. Oh, okay. Um, and on the day the storm hit, we were getting less than 1% of our power from wind turbines. So natural gas, could it keep up? Well, well natural gas and nuclear did keep up initially. But as I said, what happened is the administrators, um, they saw some power outages occurred, right? And the administrators said, oh, we've got to stop these from occurring. So we're going to cut off... Uh, we're going to cut off power to certain infrastructure so we can keep it going to residences. Well, among the parts of the infrastructure that they cut off power to were natural gas switching. Uh, um, I don't know the name of the technology, but there's these locations where natural gas pipelines come together and uh, they cut off the power to those. Oh, well, yeah. they froze up. Yeah. And if they freeze, you can't get power through them. You can't get gas to them. So eventually, even the natural gas uh, power plants uh, shut down. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it wasn't a comedy of errors. It was a tragedy of errors because two hundred people died here. Yeah. Well, um, just, just you know, Ottawa, of course, has got two factors against it, which Texas had in favor of it. First of all, Ottawa gets to minus thirty quite quite often in the winter. Yeah, I was about and to say, yours isn't a, a, a once in a three decade event. Yours is annual. Yeah. And the other thing is they won't be keeping any of our fossil natural gas at all. I mean, they'll get rid of it completely and they'll be trying to rely almost entirely on wind and solar. Now, minus 30, wind and solar being your primary, almost only energy source. I mean, what do you see happening for the city of Ottawa? Uh, well, if the people are smart... They'll either turn out the politicians that want to do this uh, and replace them with people who uh, know a little bit about engineering. Power systems shouldn't be designed by politicians who aren't engineers. Right. And yet increasingly they are. Um, if, 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 if they don't think they can effectuate that change, I suggest they move someplace else because what's going to happen is mass deaths. Mm. Why? Why? 
okay, wind turbines will likely freeze, but maybe they won't. Some of them will keep operating. Solar panels will be covered by ice and snow. Uh, batteries, well, battery backup is good unless it happens to catch fire, yeah. uh, which increased demand like that kind of demand will almost certainly cause them to really heat up. Um, and what do you know? What, what does everyone know about batteries in cold weather? They, yeah, they don't they, work very well. They drain. <laughs> they drain. So you're going to back up solar panels that will certainly not be producing power because they're covered by snow or ice. Turbines, some of which will freeze up. Uh, and you're going to back them all up with batteries. <laughs> uh, well, first yeah. off, first off, the, the amount of batteries it would take to back up most of your power supply probably mm -hmm. doesn't exist in the world right now. Yeah, California apparently has the biggest battery system in the world, and they say they can power their electrical grid if the rest of it goes out for 102 seconds. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, what kind of I would I would wager you'd need an area the size of Ottawa itself of batteries <laughs> yeah. to keep yeah. it going for probably four hours, maybe. <laughs> and that's optimistic. So my point is. You're going to be in a lot of trouble if they actually do what they say they're going to do. So no, the people no. there have choices. They could vote these stinkers out. They can move to some place where it's not as crazy. Uh, uh, or, you know, I guess they could invest in uh, wood burning stoves and, uh, uh, and you know, I, I can't see you doing that in high rises. Well, but well, the generators. Yeah, if you've got diesel generators, but how, you know, I, I'm not sure about the safety of running a diesel generator indoors. Uh, <laughs> on your balcony, you know. Yeah, on your know, balcony, I guess you could plug it up. Uh, but then, but then, of course, we're going to lose all those emission gains if, if I don't know how many people well, live in Ottawa, but if you got 40,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 people living in Ottawa and they're all running diesel generators, you're going to lose those emission gains quite fast. Right. Now, that's the other factor. And, and we only have a minute left, but is it really environmentally friendly when you look at the net result of trying to run the city on wind and solar power? Well, you know, not if you're a migrating bird or bat, not if, uh, <laughs> you know, no, it's, it, the answer is it's not uh, mm -hmm. because all of those, all of those panels, turbines, batteries require something called critical minerals and rare earth elements. And most of those are mined under horrific conditions uh, and destroy the planet. And you're not mining them, but you, you are, you are doing some, I think you do some well, lithium mining there in Canada, but you're not mining most of these minerals. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. you're going to get them from, from abroad where they don't have good environmental rules. And then they're going to be shipped to you via what fossil fuels. And when they break, they'll have to be replaced and they'll, you, you'll have big piles of batteries that can't be recycled and solar panels that can't be recycled and wind turbines that nobody wants. Uh, <laughs> it's not environmentally friendly at all. Yeah. And of course, then you have every second home running a diesel generator in their backyard just to survive. And I assume that would produce a lot more pollution than a natural gas pipeline just coming in. Almost certainly. Almost certainly. Yeah, for sure. Well, we got to wrap up now. This has been really, really interesting. You know, I have a, a speech actually tomorrow night, and you've given me lots of good things I can bring up, especially about the IPCC report that just came out. I mean, the fact that they don't even agree with their own reports that they're supposed to be summarizing. I mean, it's, it's completely no. crazy. No, it's, so we got to wrap up. So, Sterling, thanks so much for being a guest on my show. 
thanks for having me. I look forward to being on again. Yeah, for sure. We'll have to have you back. We only got halfway through the questions. So my guest today has been Sterling Burnett, uh, Dr. Sterling Burnett. He's director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. Go to heartland.org for all this information because it's a pretty amazing group. So this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. If you've been enjoying this show, I ask that you visit the International Climate Science Coalition website at icsc-climate.com. That's icsc-climate.com. And click on the big red donate button at the top to help us continue to bring you this program every week. In the meantime, we have amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned to the other side of the story.